Hello and welcome to the first and possibly last podcast of Save Our Fantasy Crafting. Uh, I guess you could call me your host and I guess you could call me Safer if you want, uh, which obviously isn't my real name, but as an older role player um, and general dotate, I still value my privacy and um, I still don't really trust all this internet malarkey. So, uh, also, as this is my first podcast, and because I'm such a Luddite, uh, I don't have any digital tools or anything, I'm, I, I, haven't got, I won't be having a theme tune or introduction music, and uh, I won't be having any background ambience or gimmicky sounds like, say, a cow bursting into my room or something. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry for that. I couldn't resist. Uh, that was just my little pathetic attempt at some goon show style humour. Um, I guess I don't want to take myself too seriously. Um, I loved the goon show when I was a kid. Uh, I loved my father's recordings of that show. Um, if you don't know what the goon show was, it was a BBC radio show from the 1950s with Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, and Harry Seacombe. And it was full of crazy, surreal humour. And if you haven't been able to tell already, and you haven't been able to tell from the way that I just pronounced Goonshaw, then I'm actually a Geordie from the northeast of England. And one of the reasons I've done this podcast is because I have been enjoying listening to Menion, a.k.a. Rob's podcast, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, um, or should I say, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. Uh, I don't know if that's quite caught Menion's soft, lilting Scottish accent, but I did promise him in a Twitter conversation that I would let him hear my coarse Geordie accent in comparison. And um, also, I've been following Menion's progress with getting back in, getting back into um, first edition A D and D, and how um, he's been grown steadily more frustrated with elements of the game mechanics, uh, with its clunk, and um, how this frustration of his had mirrored my own experience with A D and D back in the mid eighties. And it brought to mind an article that I had read at the time in White Dwarf 65 called Balancing Act. It was by a guy called Mike Lewis. And in it, he argues that there's a conflict between the rules in role-playing games and the role-playing within role-playing games. And in the article, he, he, he advocates for a sort of a rolling back of the rules within role-playing games um, to try and create a more free-form, a more flowing, a more natural and immersive uh, style of game and experience. And I, and I thought that was really significant and poignant at the time because... I read it around about the exact time that I was feeling exactly those sentiments about AD&D. 
And I just thought that the article might have some relevance and use to Menion for the way he was feeling about um, his recent gaming with AD&D. So I, I threatened to read the article over a podcast for him. And um, this is that podcast. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the article out as it was presented in 1985. I'm going to resist the temptation to comment on it as I go or to try and relate it to any modern situation of the game. I'll just read it out and let you think, let you see what you think of it and then I might comment on it at the end. Perhaps give my little two-pence opinion on it. So here's the article. It's called Balancing Act. Subtitled Why Rules and Roleplaying Don't Mix by Mike Lewis from White Dwarf 65, the May 1985 issue. And it begins, Playing characters with a strong emphasis on developing a three-dimensional identity is much lauded amongst serious role players. The use of realistic, long and complex rules is also considered the height of real role playing. This attitude is strange, since one directly opposes the other. Role playing is hampered by realistic rules, and realistic rules leave very little room for role playing to develop. Thus, it is hardly surprising that many people find it difficult to achieve a true and satisfying atmosphere in a game. To put this problem quite simply, the rules get in the way. Consider the situation in a typical role-playing game. An event has just occurred which needs some form of adjudication. The rules are brought out, consulted with the correct air of reverence, dice are rolled, and the outcome of the decision announced. Yet the moment this happens, the atmosphere which has been carefully built up during that session and which derives from the role-playing aspect of the game is destroyed. The moment a player is asked to roll a dice or the GM pauses to consult the rulebook, the players are taken from their fantasy world and thrust rudely back into the real world. At this point, the whole game experience created by the interaction between GM and player ceases. And the game becomes just that an exercise using bits of paper, dice and metal figures. The more realism and accuracy a rules system strives to create, the more complex and detailed the rules become, and the harder it is for the GM to remember all the necessary rules, and the greater the rules system intrudes into the game. One possible solution is to reduce the game system to something on the level of tunnels and trolls, or fighting fantasy. Simple rules which are easily remembered and quick to play. Is TNT a better system than, say, chivalry and sorcery? No. They are both very unrealistic, as they both attempt to quantify human characteristics and abilities in terms of dice rolls. Surely the best method of gaming, then, is to have no rule system. Nothing would interfere with the player's enjoyment of the game, and the GM would be saved a lot of time and trouble, not to mention money, over the rules. The GM makes decisions based on a free Kriegspiel system. 
based on the outcome of any action upon his judgment of an appropriate result and his world view. An ideal solution, easy to adjudicate, with no arguments over the rules and with everybody happy. Unfortunately, this ideal system, in all but a few exceptional cases, would prove to be impossible to put into practice, simply because of the weight of responsibility it placed on the games master's shoulders, and the feelings of suspicion which are bound to arise. How can the players trust all the GM's decisions? How can they be sure that the GM is unbiased and that he will rule equally in all cases? Would you like to face an angry player who demands to know why his character has just died? All he did was to fall off a cliff. When Harry's character did that last week, he lived through it. How do you explain to him that you've since realised your last decision was wrong and that your worldview has now changed or that you made a mistake last time? without your players losing faith in your GMing abilities. Excuse me. Then there are the rules lawyers. The players insist on quoting you chapter and verse, verbatim, the rule book. You can't do that. It says on page 234, paragraph 6, under exceptions. Under a free Kriegspiel system, they would question every decision. These players would be the death of most GMs. There has to be a midpoint, however, somewhere between the two extreme approaches, which offers a chance for enhanced role-playing, yet includes enough hard and fast rules to keep the average player happy. This intermediate state can be achieved in any game, under any game system, simply by experimenting a little, and altering the way in which rules, decisions and the player's actions are handled. Here are a few suggestions. Number one. If there is a very high chance of character success in a given situation, allow that successful action to take place without a dice roll. This may sound like heresy. What are dice rolls and rules for if not to limit the characters from doing things? I am not suggesting that you should allow all characters with more than a 50% chance in instant success. That would bias things far too heavily in the player's favour. Just if the situation is a mundane and ordinary one which only slows things down, e.g. looking for firewood, attempting to light a cigarette, etc. etc. Sorry, It is not advisable to use this option when the success or failure of an action is particularly important to the campaign, or the character concerned. A side effect of this is that it does give player characters a slightly better chance of survival. Not always a bad thing. Suggestion 2. If you are unable to remember a rule during the middle of a game, which is flowing particularly well and is building up a good atmosphere, do not break the mood by checking up on the rules. Instead, trust in your own judgement, taking into account all the factors of the situation and your own knowledge and experience of your campaign. Once you have GM'd even just a few sessions, you pick up an instinctive feel for the game and rule system, which will allow you to make snap decisions in a realistic fashion. Note, however, that this should not be done when a player character is in danger of dying, as the player will tend to harbour ill feelings if it turns out later that your judgement was wrong. Although this idea does sound a little like cheating and even just sheer laziness on the GM's part, it isn't. The rules are not that important a part of the game that they cannot be ignored once in a while. Strict rules playing belongs in games like Monopoly, not in the free and open-ended experience that forms a role-playing game. Try not to rely too heavily, sorry this is point three, try not to rely too heavily on dice and random encounter tables for your 
encounters during an adventure. While a random encounter can liven up a flagging game session, there'd be nothing better than a quick fight to arouse people's interests, you can get too much of a good thing. If the rules say you should roll for encounters once every three turns, try not to take them too literally. Several times I've seen parties of adventurers surrounded by wandering monsters who seem to swarm in from every direction. All this type of constant encounter really achieves is to distract the players from their current task in the game, to slow the game down and to eventually create a very muddled and unstructured campaign. I've always found it better to prepare a set of pre-planned encounters and to introduce these at appropriate points in the course of play. This also enables you to deliberately distract the players from the main part of your campaign if you have a strong reason to delay them. Random encounters then become subplots, which can introduce characters to new and important NPCs, reward them with items they will need in their main quest, or split the party up and set them against each other. If used carefully and with some consideration, random encounters can add much more to an ongoing campaign than the mere thrill of a quick fight with a wandering monster. Suggestion 4. React to your players. Roleplaying is a two-way exchange. Interaction on several levels is essential between the players and the GM. Do not be afraid to alter the scenario you are running in response to some player action. If the adjustment reduces a better game and a more satisfying and enjoyable outcome for the players, then it is worth doing even if it means radically altering your plot. In the same way that rules can be ignored, amended and even rewritten, so commercial scenarios can be altered. Rather than following the scenario plot exactly, always be on the lookout for tie-ins between the scenario and your group of player characters. If you are playing a game such as AD&D, which uses character classes, then the types of character in the player party are going to have a major effect on the scenario's outcome. Some scenarios may have a vital clue in them, or an essential piece of equipment, which can only be reached by someone with the skills of a thief. So any party without a thief present is going to have problems in playing through the scenario, and is going to miss out on a lot of the action and enjoyment to be gained from it. Adapt the scenario ideas, content and difficulty to match your party. It isn't just character powers that are important, also objects, religions and any phobia they may have. It's also important to be able to adapt the scenario in mid-game. If the players think of a clever and ingenious way through a trap or dead end, you must be able to think on your feet and react. Spontaneity is a vital part of all good role-playing. Suggestion 5. In even a small group of players, many GMs adopt the idea of each player taking an action in turn, so that each member of the group gets to do something in the game. This is not a bad idea. Groups can easily be dominated by one or two loud and vociferous players who will tend to get an unfair share of the action. Yet the very concept of a fixed turn for each player goes against the goals that a fancy role-playing game is trying to achieve, that of an intricate and detailed narrative, a living novel as some have called it. Allotting a discrete action to each of the player characters in order reduces the game flow to that of a board game. Each player can make a move, roll the dice, and then sit around until it is their turn to go next. You simply cannot create a satisfactory flowing role-playing atmosphere with such artificial constraints. The answer is to let the game progress naturally, with each player only taking an action when they have to, and when it is realistic for them to do so within the game. 
This can be extremely difficult for a GM to achieve without a central player character dominating all the action and players with perhaps less powerful characters being left out. No one likes sitting around watching someone else have all the fun and make all the decisions. In order for this system to work effectively, producing a smooth flowing game without discrete intervals of time, and yet to involve all the players present or to make them feel like they are involved, takes a lot of practice and puts a lot of pressure on the GM. You must be aware of all your players at once and try to divide your time between them equally. If a player is just sitting there and looks as though they are not, or sorry, if they're sitting there as though they are feeling left out, make them join in. Use an NPC to drag them into the game, to force them to make a decision. If the players are no longer just sitting around the table waiting for the next turn, idly playing with dice, spilling beer cans, etc., they are actively involved in the game all the time because they can never be sure when they have to make a decision. The game flows better and creates a greater sense of atmosphere. The above points are only a few suggestions which arise from my own experience of running games. They are, there are many more ways of removing the rules from the game and creating a more realistic role-playing feeling. One possible idea is to give a form of secondary GM who would be responsible for the NPCs within the game. And it would be he or she that role-played them rather than the GM. This would take a fair amount of work off the GM's shoulders in that he can no longer has to concentrate on role-playing his NPCs but can concentrate on the game's flow and the player's actions. While the NPCs could be improved by having a good role player devote all of their attention to the various roles required, adding depth and feeling to what are often little more than names. This would require a lot of work between the GM and his NPC master as they would both have to work closely together to keep the campaign flowing realistically without inconsistencies between their two approaches. Yet it would be a great challenge to most role players to play the parts of all these characters, and I feel it would be definitely benefit a large group by freeing the GM from a lot of unnecessary work. I have actually run games of my campaign Gilkerman in a totally free Kriegspiel fashion, the most notable being a run at Stabcon 4 a couple of years ago. It has proven to be successful, the major problem being character player identity. The players seem to find it hard to relate to just a character description of their characters without the usual characteristics and other statistics. Hit points appear to be a major problem area. Few, peer, few players like being told that their character is feeling weak without them knowing exactly how many hit points they have left. It's a survival instinct, I suppose. Try to experiment with your own rule system. If you avoid slavishly following rules and the dictates of others, then you'll find your games much more enjoyable and fulfilling. You'll even find them more fun, which is why we play the things, isn't it? Right, so that's the article. And uh, I'll give my little opinion on it. At the time, as I say, I thought this was a really... A significant uh, game that really that article that spoke to me at the time and how I was feeling frustrated. Um, and some of his the suggestions I can't really disagree with them on how you play a game. But I would say that these suggestions 
are for someone who is a mature role player, someone who has reached a stage of maturity and development of their game where they can make a cohesive, valid and realistic off-the-cuff decisions about situations in their game because they have enough knowledge about how the world works or how fancy world works or how games are run that they don't need rules so much. Um, actually, clunky rules-based systems may actually be more benefit to younger gamers who don't have the luxury of a, a more experience and a greater world view and world knowledge to be able to just make snap decisions. They might need a more clunky, structured system to allow them to build a simulation of a real world. They, they, they would just be lost, left to their own judgment um, because they, they're just not experienced enough of the world. So these, these solutions are for a mature gamer and this is a solution to actually a problem that might not apply. Um, and what I mean by that is this article is assuming that the problem is with the rule system. It's, a, it's, it's presupposing that you've reached a junction in your gaming experience where you are frustrated with your gaming experience. And that the solution to that frustration is, the, is to strip back the rules because the rules are a problem. But that might not actually be the problem with your frustration. That might not be the source of your frustration. It might be the players that you are playing with. It might be that they don't share the same motivations and aims and goals of playing that you do. And I think that's the rub. That what really you have to say is, well, what is it, why do I, am I not enjoying my games? What is it about role-playing that I do enjoy? And you might as well ask yourself, actually, a more existential level of question, which is, why do I role-play? And until you ask that, you won't really know what the solution is. Um, so these ideas are great if your problem is with the rules. But if you ask yourself that question, and you... And it's quite a hard question to ask because sometimes you, you don't know why you role-play. You, you might find out, actually, I, I don't really... I'm not really bothered by role-playing. I'm just, like, hanging out with my friends. All my friends role-play. And I like being with my friends and having fun with my friends. And I'm not really that bothered about the role-playing in, in, in itself. And strange enough, that is actually one of the most valid reasons to role-play. If you just want to have fun with your friends you are more likely to have successful role-play sessions and outcomes than somebody with another more personal motivation, um, ironically. So until you ask yourself the question, you don't necessarily know that this, these, this, suggest, these, uh, this list of suggestions is actually the answer. And also you might surprise yourself with what the answer is. If you don't know what the answer is, you may have to actually sit through a session and sort of detach yourself from the session and then just watch which parts of the session you enjoy, which parts of the session you're not really that bothered by and don't get yourself involved in, and which parts of the sessions you actually really don't like before you can answer 
why do I roleplay? And you also might shock yourself when you find the answer. It might be quite an upsetting thing. You might have quite negative reasons for roleplaying. It might be that you harbour um, fantasy, uh, um, fetishistic violence fantasies. You know, it could be that bad. Um, or you might actually just be competitive. You might want to win the game. You might want to dominate your group of friends. You might want to be top dog amongst the group that you're in. Um, or you might be a frustrated actor. You might just use role-playing as a substitute for acting or as an exercise, an acting exercise, a practice. There's many reasons why you might want to role-play. But until you ask yourself the question, you won't actually know what the answer is and how to solve your frustrations. So, well, um, let's try and wrap this up because I'm aware the podcast is going on for a bit. Um, I think as a player, probably the best thing you can do is find a group that aligns with your interests and preferences within the game once you've found out exactly why you roleplay. Um, as a GM, I think it's probably important to find out what kind of players you've got in your group. Uh, find out what their interests are and then create encounters and situations within your game that they will find enjoyable. That um, I mean, point five. Point five suggests using an NPC to drag a a, a character into the game, a, a player into the game who's not taking part. That's fine if you know what it is that your player likes doing. If 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 you have a actor player, I mean, I, I think there's. I read somewhere that there's three typical types of role player. There's the tactician who likes combat. There's the Excuse me. There's a puzzler who likes mysteries and solving puzzles, and there's the actor who likes role playing and social interaction. I'm sure that's not the only types of players. Oh, there's more than that. Really expanding that, but they're meant to be the classic types of player. So, say you have an actor type player, and you drag him into a tactical situation, involve him in a in a combat situation. He that that, that player might not thank you for it. You know, um, they they may be unhappy about it or you might have a, a tactical player and you ask her to solve a problem and she might think well I'm not really interested in problems I just want to get to the next fight but um so yeah I think as a as a as a GM if you have a group of players who are not in line with your interests if, if you're if, because as a GM you're you're a player as well you're partaking if you're say like an actor GM and you have a group of tactician players you're probably not going to have a good session um in that case it might even be better to have a have a group of players that have got a wide uh, number of motivations to play because in that case you can then find out what their motivations are and develop numerous encounters to include all the different types of uh, motivations and include the different people that you have in your group and you're more likely to have a successful outcome then and and also you're probably going to find that you probably 
if you do that, you probably don't need to drag players into situations because they'll probably naturally gravitate to the encounters that you have assigned to them. They'll probably an actor a player will probably naturally want to be involved in the social interaction elements. You won't have to do much dragon for them. So um, yeah, I, I'm aware that I've I've kind of thrown a bit of a twist ending into this podcast. Uh, I might have thrown a bit of a googly at the last minute. Uh, I, I don't want to appear like I've been disingenuous in it. I, I do think the article is a strong article, a good article. And I think the suggestions are really good. But I think there's a wider considerations as time's gone on and I've matured myself. I think there's even more considerations to think about how to um, address the, the stage that you might get to where you get frustrated at role playing. So I'll, I'll leave it there. If anybody has actually listened to this um, and you want to comment, then please feel free. If, if you if you agree with them, if you agree with what I've said, if you vehemently disagree or you just want to comment on it, please leave a message on the Anchor app or you can email me at saferfantasycrafting at uh, gmail.com uh, I, I said I, I might do another podcast because um, there were some responses to this article. It had quite an impact at the time. Uh, that Some of the later editions of White Dwarf had some readers' letters re uh, responding to this article some of them agreeing with it some people disagreeing um so if i do another podcast i might read out those responses to the article and then i might something about this article has a suggestion to me about the possible situation between osr and the modern style of play and some of the conflicts that i see in the modern game it's, it's hinting at it to me it's, i can't quite clarify in my mind it's a bit of a siren call that i'm hearing I might consider some of the some of the some of the letters in the old white dwarf pages seem to hint at generational issues going on back then as well. So I might tentatively touch on them if I do another podcast. So um, thank you for listening. This might be goodbye. It might be my last one. I don't know. It might just be farewell. Uh, but thank you. Right. Well, that is it. I. I I don't have, I, I, I was being honest about before when I said I don't have any music to play us out or as an introduction thing. So yeah, really, that's it. <laughs>